A reading from the book of Acts, chapter 16, verses 16 through 30. In this holy scripture, listen for God's word to you. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they, went, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in an inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? The word of God. Just the other day, I was reading about a young woman, age 23, who has her own column in the New York Times. Now, I don't know about you, but that amazed me. I was impressed by that. Age 23, already had her own column in one of the most prestigious news sources in the world. 23. Now, when I was 23... It was my first year in seminary, and my goal was to get through my introductory courses. That's all I wanted to do. If I could make uh, a few B's, maybe an A, I'd be doing well. Uh, little did I know it was going to get so much harder, but that was my goal. First semester in seminary, just to make it through. Now, most 23-year-olds who do not plan on getting a master's degree graduate 
with their bachelors, and they began looking for their first real job. But more than likely, this job isn't going to be the most prestigious job that they're ever going to have. They're probably not going to retire doing that job because, as you know, you have to start off at the bottom and work your way up to the top. Some people say you've got to be at the bottom of the barrel and work on coming up. But this lady, 23, having her own column in the New York Times, she didn't start off at the bottom. She went straight to the big leagues. In her column, she, she often talks about how she likes to set goals for herself. She sets goals, and then she works to achieve those goals, and then she sets some more goals, and then she wants to achieve those goals, and so on and so forth. She says that she has a 5, 10, and 25-year plan. But one afternoon, she received a call from her doctor. And those plans, well, they were on hold. Her doctor said, I'm sorry to inform you this, but you have leukemia. And the prognosis is not good. She wrote a week later in her column that if only she could sue her body for a breach of contract. Because to her, health and youth was synonymous. And I think we could all agree with that. A 23-year-old person does not need to be planning his, her, his or her own funeral, but that's exactly what happened here. Well, after hearing of this prognosis, it was interesting to me that this young lady changed the name of her column to Life Interrupted. In our gospel reading for this morning, in Acts 16, Luke gives us a litany of interruptions. Did you happen to catch them as we read the scripture together this morning? The actual story begins with an interruption. Paul and Silas commissioned to go to Philippi to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. They had been doing ministry for a few days, and we all know that in ministry we give and give and give, and eventually we become spiritually depleted. And we need a break. We need to step back and rest. We need to be spiritually renewed and refreshed. And like Paul and Silas in this text, sometimes we just need to sit away and pray. And that's exactly what they tried to do before they were interrupted. As ministers were interrupted all the time, from hospital visits to funerals that were called to perform, and sometimes were even interrupted by a slave girl who has an evil spirit within her. That doesn't happen too often to us, does it? But it happened to Paul and Silas. They were interrupted by this demon-possessed girl who could predict the future. Now, the owners of this girl, well, she was a jewel to them. She was their cash cow, so to speak. They had a lucrative business with her 
uh, telling people's fortunes. People from all over would come to her. They would pay a lot of money for her to predict the future to them. It may have been a gamble purchasing her in the first place, but their investment paid off for she was a gold mine. She was your first century Sylvia Brown, so to speak. Now, as soon as she spotted Paul and Silas, she took a brief hiatus from the crystal ball, and she began following these two like a stray dog. And as she followed them, she shouted over and over again, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. So even with an evil spirit within her, she still was able to speak the truth. But Paul wasn't impressed. He didn't care that, that she was speaking the truth, for she was bothering him. She annoyed him, as it says in the text. And so the only way to stop her from annoying him was to cast this demon out of her. So that's exactly what he does. To shut her up, he casts the demon out of her and immediately after he did so, the demon left her. And so we have interruption number two, don't we? This anonymous girl who had been enslaved for most of her life was free. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to know more about her. But she seems to just vanish into thin air. Luke is mum mum's the word for Luke here. He doesn't have much to say about her. He doesn't go into great detail. I want to know how drastically her life changed after being healed. I want to know if she remained a slave, possibly, but she wouldn't be of any value anymore to our owners. What happened? Tell us, Luke, what happened after her healing. I think the only thing that we could definitely say about her is that Jesus was more than willing to intrude in her life. And he offered her salvation and hope that was extended to her. Now that's the good news in this story, that she was extended hope and salvation. But there's bad news. You know there's always bad news in a story. And the bad news is that Paul... And Silas were going to be reprimanded for what they did. How dare they come in and, and upset the apple cart? For here you have these owners of this slave girl who are able to predict the future. She was their cash cow. You know that they are already planning their retirements. A new beach house on the Macedonian coast, a first century Range Rover, they were planning for a wonderful and carefree future. But their dreams went down the drain because of Paul, because of Jesus. However, you'll notice that, that Luke uh, doesn't say that the magistrates charged Paul and Silas because they upset the economy because they took this cash cow away 
from these slave owners. They don't, he doesn't say that. But rather the reason why Paul and Silas are charged here is because they're foreigners. You see, just as xenophobia is common now, it was common then as well. We fear those who do not look or think or, or act like we do. Here you have these two men, Jews in a Roman province, going and, and preaching a gospel contrary to what the Romans preached. And so you know they were going to be in trouble with that. They had to be reprimanded. And so Luke says that they were stripped, beaten, thrown into prison. And just for safe measure, the jailer put them into cells and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now this is an interesting turn of events here. Can't you see this just dripping with irony? Paul and Silas disciples, missionaries of Jesus Christ who were commissioned to go to Philippi to preach the good news, this good news that includes releasing captives. But lo and behold, they became captives themselves. Dare we say that this is interruption number three. But this unwanted interruption, presumably, doesn't keep Paul and Silas from praising God in their jail cells. And, and Luke goes on to say that the other prisoners intently listen to them as they praise God. So could this interruption end up bearing fruit? As they were singing and praising God, this great earthquake took place and it shook the very foundations of the prison and the, the, the cell doors flew open and the chains were loosened and what appeared to be a salve, salvific event for Paul and Silas ended up being a death sentence for this jailer for he had one job and that job was to make sure that the prisoners stayed in their cells no one escaped and he couldn't do his job, could he? Now, he knew what the outcome was going to be for him. He knew that since he didn't do his job, that there was a chance that he was going to be murdered by those in charge. And so he decided to just go ahead and commit suicide instead of being murdered. And this situation, in some ways, reminds me of what that New York Times columnist was going through. Here he was, this jailer with a stable job. Obviously, his salary was adequate enough to put food on the table. He lived a comfortable and, and satisfied life, at least that is before this earthquake took place. I believe it's safe to put the title on him, Life Interrupted. In his memoir, the pastor, Eugene Peterson, writes of being commissioned to start a new church, a new Presbyterian church in the northern suburbs of Baltimore, Maryland. At that time, people were, were fleeing the city. 
They were fleeing the decayed and crime-ridden city of Baltimore. They were, trying, they were leaving for greener pastures. They wanted to be able to, to allow their children to play in the street safely and to keep their doors unlocked during the day. And so this mass exodus of people were heading north of Baltimore. Schools and, and subdivisions and shopping malls being built. Now keep in mind, this is the 1960s. And, and again, living in an urban area was not in vogue. You wanted to move outward, away from the dangerous city. But when this happened, a lot of your established downtown churches began to wither away. Why is that? Well, why should someone drive 30 to 45 minutes to worship in a downtown church when they can walk just down the street and attend a new and shiny church? And so you, you, you witness many of these downtown churches relocating to the suburbs, or you even would see these church plants, and that's exactly what Peterson and his wife Jan did. They planted a church, first in their basement of their house, but the long-term goal was to build a church, a church to meet the needs of a growing community of North, North Baltimore. And so... They started this building campaign, and the results were astounding. Not only did they raise the money rather quickly, but it brought this church together. And everyone helped to build this church. He said you could just, just sense the energy pulsating through this church. People's spirits were high, the attendance was soaring, the Holy Spirit was at work in that place. But he said right after they built that building and the building project was over, the church began on a downward slide. Attendance started falling off. Worship became stale and boring and the Holy Spirit seemed to have moved on. So Peter found himself, Peterson found himself in this deep, dark depression. For what did he do wrong as a pastor? Why was the church struggling? And, and what could he do to fix this situation? If you continue reading in the book, you read about Peterson finally coming to the realization that he had this unhealthy desire to live from goal to goal, to accomplishment to accomplishment, and that included the church. His calling became more of a competition. How could he make the church better? How could he grow the church? In essence, he became a prisoner of his own success. And he desperately needed an interruption. The jailer in our story for this morning believed that this interruption was indeed going to be his last, but just the opposite occurs, we see. Instead of all of the prisoners escaping their prison cells, they stay put. And the jailer is just overwhelmed and overjoyed that they decide to stay in their cells. And so he finds Paul and Silas. He falls to his knees and he asks, what must I do to be saved? 
And you ask, and I ask, what do you mean by that question, jailer? What do you want to be saved from? Do you want to be saved from the authorities, those in charge who are coming after you? Or do you want to be saved from this dark life that you have been living for a long time? Do you want protection or do you want a relationship with Jesus Christ? Maybe he wants both. But either way, he has this longing to be rescued. And that's exactly what occurs in this text. He is indeed rescued. You know, interruptions can be seen in different ways. Some interruptions are welcomed. Some are not. And others can go either way. For instance, a call to ministry can can be a breath of fresh air. It could be a burden. Or it could be this exciting new adventure where you don't know where you're going to end up. A man in his 50s who had been practicing law for years begins to, to wrestle with the call of ministry. Now, this call to ministry could be a foundation shaker for him. It could shake loose these chains that have kept him in bondage for years. Or the call to ministry could interrupt his affluent lifestyle. And he throws up his hands and he says, Jesus, this isn't for me. Go ahead and choose someone else. Or perhaps the call could be a challenge. Should he accept or should he turn it down? You know that Jesus is in the business of interruptions or shall we say rescuing us from our 5, 10, 25 year plans. Here's the thing that you need to know about Jesus. He's just going to intrude whenever he wants He's not going to call you and ask you to set up an appointment. He's not going to email you and say, meet me at Starbucks. We need to talk about this interruption. We need to talk about me about to intrude in on your life. He just does it. And he doesn't ask us about it first. If Jesus wants to intrude, by golly, he's going to intrude. But we ought to know this. As disciples, we ought to know that Jesus doesn't knock at our door. He just comes barging right in. I had planned on concluding this sermon by encouraging us to adopt the mantra, life interrupted. But I don't like that after reading this text. After having an encounter with this text, I think that that I've come across a better mantra for us to adopt. How about life rescued?